first of all, Michael, I'd like to welcome you to Hawaii and to XA News TV. So thanks for coming. You're very welcome, Michael. It's my pleasure to be here. So I'd like to begin with you just giving us a brief intro into your military and police background. Okay, to, to sum that up briefly, uh, I served in the United States Marine Corps Reserve from 1978 to 1984. I took a break, uh, went to college, worked in civilian life for a few years, and then I joined the United States Army in December of 1987 and served until December of 1991. I became a police officer, first in a city called Mount Lake Terrace, Washington. I worked there for about eight or nine months and then I was hired by the city of Seattle. I worked in Seattle from 92 to 2001, uh, after which I took a little bit of a break in life. Uh, and in 2004, I was asked to go to Liberia, Africa, and serve in a United Nations mission over there uh, as a peacekeeping advisor. Thank you. Well, the key event here in terms of just understanding uh, what happened during your military service, especially uh, during the Marine Corps, was a UFO sighting in 1978. And can you tell us about that 1978 sighting and why that led to you joining the Marine Corps? I believe, well, first of all, I'll, I'll describe this, the sighting itself. It was March of 1978. Uh, we were just months away from graduating from high school. I graduated at the end of May in 1978. A good friend of mine and I were out driving around on the country roads around the town that I grew up in. And we, we were out driving around getting ready to go to uh, the final senior party uh, that we were going to have for our group of, you know, the kids that we hung out with. And we were preparing to go to that party. And we went out and parked on a country road, and I'm ashamed to say we were having a beer, you know, sitting there preparing to go to the party and talking about things like, you know, what we were going to do with our lives and, 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 you know, subject matter like that. We were setting out on this country road right beside a big water tower that provides the water for the city that I, you know, the town that I grew up in. As we were setting there, we noticed on the horizon to our right, we noticed this white light, sort of like it entered the, the horizon to our west, and it caught our attention. And we, you know, we looked at it because it was moving so incredibly fast. It, it came into, onto the horizon and it moved across the entire horizon in a matter of seconds. And we were just amazed by that. Uh, we were, it drew our attention. We began to focus on that. And for the next minute and a half or so, it put on an aerial display, the likes of which neither of us had ever seen. You know, it, it was obviously something that was violating the laws of aerodynamics as we understood them as 18-year-olds in, in 1978. After a little while, you know, a minute and a half or so, the light went out. And, and it, you know, it's important to point out, though, this object was making... It was rapidly crossing the horizon, and as it would be going on a line, it would turn and make 90-degree turns. Uh, it did that several times, and that really drew our attention. Well, like I said, the light went out, and, you know, we looked at each other and started discussing what we had just seen and, you know, what the possibilities were. And as we sat there, you know, a few seconds went by, 
and we noticed the light again, except this time it was much larger, obviously much closer to us, and still putting on a bit of a display. As we watched, the light was on, and the, the light got bigger, as if this object was moving directly towards us. Again, it went out. A few seconds went by. We looked again, and there it was again, you know, still kind of moving around in the sky, but getting larger. It, you know, obviously it was moving closer towards us. Again, the light went out, and a, a little bit more time went by, you know, maybe 20 seconds or so, and we went back to our conversation, focus, focusing on each other. And at the same time, we looked out the window of his car, and what, what we saw in front of us was just amazing. We, we looked out, and then the cornfield in front of us was, I would describe as a black triangle, hundreds of feet long on all three sides. It had white lights in each of the three corners, which were smaller in comparison to the central light that was in the center of this triangle. Uh, all the lights were white. We never saw any other color light put on display as we watched this unfold in front of us. Of course, we were, we were absolutely amazed. Uh, it's important to point out that I grew up just absolutely in love with the idea of space. I always... I always was fascinated and mesmerized by NASA. The idea that we had accomplished all those things I thought was just incredible. And I had always, you know, secretly just really had a desire to be an astronaut. I think a lot of kids did, you know. And we sat there and I, I was so fascinated by it. I felt like I was being shown something very special. Well, I rolled the window down on the car we were in. By the way, it was an old VW Bug, an old red... VW bug. We had the dome light on inside the car. I rolled my window down and I stuck my torso out of the window and was looking at this object and you know my senses were at work. I was trying, you know, I detected no sound at all. It was emitting no discernible sound but at the same time there was a a mild detectable hum that was in the air. I could also feel the hair on my arm standing up and the, the sense that there was an electrical charge, like static electricity or something like that in the air. Well, as we, you know, this thing was several hundred feet away from us in a field and it started slowly, silently drifting towards us. Well, like I'd mentioned earlier, we were parked right beside a water tower. Well, this triangle, as it moved towards us, it just began to black out the night sky. It was absolutely huge. All the stars in the, the background disappeared and this thing just completely blacked out the sky above us, above us. Excuse me. It slowly drifted over to the water tower, kind of centering itself above that tower. I'd say it was a 150 to 175 feet directly above us. And again, I, you know, I was hanging out the window just eating this thing up, you know, looking at it and just mesmerized by it. And then it dawned on me that I should check on my friend, you know, because I, I didn't know how he was reacting to this. And I, I pulled my torso back in the window. I looked over at him, and he had a look of kind of concern on his face. He was real, you know, unsure of what we were experiencing. And the idea of the dome light being on in the car, I think it made him feel a little insecure. 
And while, you know, while I was watching him, he reached up and turned the dome light off inside the car. Seamlessly, the instant the dome light in the car went off, this craft emitted a red beam of light down onto the vehicle. I'd say that that light was on us for seven to ten seconds, somewhere in there. Uh, what was unique about this light is it had a it had a red, almost near infrared quality, and it it had almost a flowing, like almost a liquid sense about it. Uh, the way it was engulfing the car and you know flowing into the vehicle. And I think, you know, it even that generated a little concern in my mind. I was, oh my gosh, what is this? What, what is it we're experiencing? After seven to ten seconds, the light went off. The craft slowly started drifting to the west. Uh, we were facing to the south, setting on that road. The craft started drifting to the west. It, you know, I'd say it drifted maybe a quarter mile away or something like that. And it... The aura around it, the, the image of this craft, it, it became distorted. Uh, the edges of it became distorted, and it it's as if it just disappeared right in front of us. It turned into a really small white light as if it just shot you know, out of sight instantaneously. Uh, you know, we were both stunned and, and excited and, and a little bit, oh, I'd say concerned as to what we had just seen. And I... Again, I got, you know, pulled my torso back in the vehicle and we discussed what we had just experienced. And for some reason, we decided that it was in our best interest in 1978. The, the subject matter of UFOs and things like that were out there in the general public, but not on, not on the scale that they are today. And we knew that if we went and spoke to friends and family or, or even made an attempt to report this to the authorities, that... It would, we would probably not get a very good reaction. You know, we would be considered nut jobs or whatever. And, and so we, we discussed it, and we decided not to talk about it. Uh, we kept it between ourselves and uh, went on. You know, we went to the party that night. We never spoke to anyone else about it uh, and just went on as if it really had never happened. What was the next question? How did you want me to tie that in, Michael? And, and two days later, you decided to join the U.S. Marine Corps. It, it really wasn't two days later. That was on a Friday. And, of course, you know, we went back to school the next week. And I'd say it was, it, you know, su uh, Saturday, Sunday went by. Uh, I think it was on a Tuesday. A Marine recruiter came into the high school. Uh, I was in the... I was in study hall, or we called it commons at the time, and that was held in the, the dining facility at our high school. And this recruiter came walking in. Now, it's important to point out, at this time in my life, I had no intention of joining the military. I, had, I hadn't gone and spoken with any recruiters. That really wasn't my plan. My intention was to uh, enroll at the University of Missouri and, and go to college. It seemed like that's what a all my other peers were doing and I, I thought that was the correct course of action for me. So I hadn't really researched going into the, the military at all. Well when I saw this marine recruiter walk in, he was in a, you know, a beautiful uniform, he looked really really sharp and as he walked through the commons area he turned and he, he looked right at me and you know something about that, you know the eye-to-eye -eye contact, 
it triggered a, a, a sense in me that I needed to go speak with this guy. So I did. I followed him down to a, a little room that they had set up in the high school for recruiters to speak with, with the students. Uh, I went down and spoke with him uh, and expressed an interest in you know what the Marine Corps had to offer. And uh, he, he offered me the opportunity to go take the, the ASVAB test, which is a, a test that you take to determine what your skill sets are and you know if you have the qualities that they're they're looking for in in the Marine Corps. So he arranged for me to go take that test the next day. It was probably a couple days after I took that test he returned to the high school and uh, called me called me from class and I went in and sat down and spoke with him and he he explained to me that I had done very well on the tests. The, the testing that I took reflected certain skill sets that they were very interested in. And you know, I was a little surprised by that. Oh, you know, I thought this is great. You know, there I have a, a possibility here of getting a really good job in the, in the military if I choose to do that. And so I let him know based on on the test scores that I would be really interested in joining the Marine Corps for three or four years, at which time I'd get out and go to college. And, you know, I would have a college fund or they had programs like that available then. And I thought this would be a good way to earn money for college and maybe mature a little bit, get, get a little life experience, and then come home and go to school. So I expressed, expressed to him that that's what I wanted to do. And he immediately let me know that there was another program that the Marine Corps had available at the time that he really wanted to encourage me to enter into. It was called the Reserve Special Enlistment Program. Now, again, I wanted to go active duty, and, and I really thought that a, a military recruiter would value someone that wanted to go active service a little bit more than someone that was going, that expressed an interest in going into the reserves. And I, I quite frankly, I wasn't really interested in that. And so I told him, you know, I appreciate you pointing that out, but I think I'd rather go active duty and, and do the three or four years. and. He said, that's really neat and all, but I, I want to make sure you're listening to me. This is a great opportunity that we're extending to you. This would include the opportunity to go to school while you're in the Marine Reserves and work toward becoming a Marine officer. And the test scores and everything that we see indicate that that would be a good fit for you. I was a bit resistant to that. You know, I was being kind of stubborn. And finally, he, you know, he said, look, if if you're going to join the, the military, you need to learn to trust the people that, that give you advice. I'm giving you really good advice here for a great opportunity. And so he, he talked me into it. I remember asking the question, if I decide along the way that the reserve program isn't for me, would I be able to go ahead and go active service? And he said, absolutely. If you decide later down the road this isn't for you, we can, we can make that happen for you. So I enrolled in that Reserve Special Enlistment Program. And, of course, at that time you were around uh, 18 years old. Yes, I was 18 at the time. Right. So uh, eventually you start uh, boot camp, and at, at boot camp you are subjected to several tests, and uh, 
uh, and, and then you're approached by two Marines to an interview. So why don't you just kind of walk us into, okay. into that process? Okay, I'll, I'll kind of lead up to that. Uh, you know, the first day I arrived in boot camp, I arrived in San Diego. That's where I went to boot camp at, boot camp at the Marine Corps Recruit Training Depot there in San Diego. The first day that I arrived, that was March, no, excuse me, May 31st of 1978. I arrived there in the evening. And, uh, you know, you go through this process, you, you know, the first thing you do when you get there is you fill out postcards home to your family to let them know you've arrived safely. You get an opportunity to make a phone call home. That didn't work out for me. My parents weren't home when I made the call. And in 78, we didn't have answering machine technology available, so uh, I didn't get to make that phone call. The rest of that night was... Oh, being issued gear and equipment, you know, haircuts, all those different things. And it, by the time we got done that first day, I'd say it was 4 o'clock in the morning into the next day. That was when they took us to a barracks. They let us lay down and attempt to get a little bit of sleep. I was out of my comfort zone a little, and, you know, I really didn't get any sleep. I laid there thinking about, oh, man, did I make a mistake or something in coming here? You know, 18 years old, away from home for the first time, I got over that pretty quickly. That next morning, they got us up, uh, and, you know, we went and ate breakfast and did all those things. And then the rest of that day was dedicated to more testing, more skills testing and uh, analytical testing, and, you know, what your skill sets are, what you're strong in. I was broken off into a group that was... I think the testing was more technical in its basis, uh, more spatial reasoning type testing. And uh, this, it took all day to go through all of those tests. It was probably three or four in the afternoon before we got to the end of that testing. Well, during the very last test of the day, and I remember this very clearly because it ties to everything else I'll tell you in an important way. The very last test of the day was on international Morse code, uh, something I'd never been exposed to, uh, but they had the testing stations that we were at were individual cubicles, and they had headsets and other equipment that facilitated the testing that you were taking. Well, with this being the last test of the day, uh, you know, I was working away doing my best to, you know, give it my best shot. I'd say that I was probably three-quarters of the way done with that test and still had time to finish. I, I knew I had plenty of time to get it done. While, while I was sitting there working on the test, I noticed a Marine corporal walking towards me out of my peripheral vision. And, you know, at this stage in boot camp, you're really trying your very best not to draw any attention to yourself, keep a low profile, satisfy all the requirements, and, and that way you'll keep these guys off your back. And I noticed he was walking directly towards me. And he walked up, he tapped me on the shoulder, and he asked, is your name Michael Gerloff? And I responded, yes, sir. And he said, come with me. Well, I was concerned. I'm, I have not done with the test yet, and I knew that I had time to complete it. And so I brought that to his attention. You know, sir, I haven't finished the test, and I still have time to do so. Let me back up one step. I at first thought, because they had warned us so strongly about 
violating the honor code and potentially cheating, you know, looking on other people's test papers and stuff like that. I thought he mistakenly believed that I had done that. And I stated that to him. And he immediately said, no, that's not why I'm here. That's not why I'm here talking to you. Come on, come with me. And then I said, you know, I'm not done with the test and, and I have time to complete it. And he said, just shut up and come with me, you know, get up and come with me. So I did. I did what I was told. I followed him out of that room. We were in a, a rather large room, and I'd say there were 40 to 60 Marine recruits in there with me, all, all doing the testing. And he led me through a, a set of doors in the corner of this room, the doors that he came into the room through. He took me through the door and down a, a short hall, hallway, and on the left there was a small room uh, and he opened the door and told me to go inside. Well, when I entered the room, you know, I scanned the room. I'm looking at the environment that I'm in. There's one metal gray table, two metal gray chairs, each, you know, each chair facing each other. Nothing else in the room. It's sterile otherwise. And there's one other door in the opposite corner of the room. Uh, this Marine Corporal told me to have a seat and that someone would be with me shortly. I'd say less than a minute went by, and this young Marine captain came through the, the door in the opposite corner and came into the room and uh, extended his hand, you know, uh, I can't remember his name, I, I, I wish I could, but I don't remember his name, but he, he you know, welcomed me and, and told me to relax, he wanted to have a relaxed conversation with me. Uh, as you can imagine, on in the second day in boot camp, there's a lot of tension. And, there's a lot of yelling and screaming. And uh, when I went to that room, they made it clear, we, we want you to relax because we, we want to have a serious conversation. Well, I noticed when this captain came into the room, he was carrying a file. I'd say it was a half inch thick. And it was obviously about me. You know, he shook my hand, he sat down at the table, he opened that file and started looking through the papers and, and let me know, you know, Michael, we're really really impressed with with your test scores you're you know you're showing traits and qualities and skills that we're very interested in and I want to I want to ask you a very serious question today we want to give you an opportunity to do something very special and I was a little confused and you know wasn't really sure you know what was going on and you know I said sir how can I help you what what is it that you have to ask me and he he had mentioned when he when he was talking about the test scores he had made the comment that they had been watching me my development for some time and that that made me believe or made me understand that there was maybe more in that folder than just information they had collected on me while I had been there you know, again it's my second day it was as if he was implying that they had been watching me for some time prior to that I think that's important to point that out. He, uh, you know, I again, I responded, well, how can I help, sir? What, what can I do for you? And he, with a very serious look on his face, with a, you know, I could tell this was a very serious moment. He looked at me and he said, Michael, how would you like to go to space? And <laughs> yeah, much like I, I did right there, I kind of snickered openly. Uh, you know, I'm 18 years old. I'm 
to, in my mind at that time, NASA was the only entity that was in space. Uh, NASA was the only group, you know, in the United States that had achieved such a thing. And I, you know, I kind of snickered, and I, well, excuse me, sir, you know, and he, his facial expression did not change. He, I could tell he was being very serious, and so I, I stopped, you know, I knocked the smile off my face, and he said, I'm being very serious. This is a very serious question I'm asking you, and it's very important. This, this is important to the country. It's important to the world and humanity, and we're giving you the opportunity to become a part of this. And my first question was, well, what about NASA, sir? What, you know, aren't they the only ones out in space? And he responded very quickly, Michael, there are things that the public just isn't aware of. And again, we're giving you the opportunity to become a part of that. And again, reiterating, it was very important. Uh, it was a, of utmost importance to humanity and the planet. Well, referring back to earlier, when I mentioned that I had joined the reserves. My initial contract, my obligation, was for a six-year term in the United States Marine Corps Reserve. I had sensed that somehow, if, if I said yes, that this would impact my contract and, and change what I had signed up for. So that was my next question. Well, sir, I, I signed up for a six-year reserve contract. How will doing this affect that? And and do I have the opportunity to say no? How, how will it impact me if I say no? And he, he made it clear that I absolutely had, had that right to say no and that it would not be held against me. And, you know, I, but my main concern was how would this change the contract that I had signed to come into the Marine Corps? And he, without hesitation, without skipping, skipping a beat, he said, Michael, this will be a 20-year obligation. And, you know, I, I was like, oh, man, this really changes everything I was planning on. And I asked him, sir, during this time, well, you know, how often will I get to see my family? Again, you know, my main concern being, you know, would I get to see my family during this time? And how often would I get to see them? And it, with a very serious look, no, no pause in the conversation, he said, Michael, your family will never even know that you were gone. Now, Michael, it's important to point out, I was a child of the 60s. I was born in 1960. I grew up with sci-fi shows like Lost in Space and The Time Tunnel and Star Trek, Twilight Zone, and the implications of that statement alone, the, you know, saying that, Michael, your family will never even know that you were gone. The implications of that made my imagination run wild, and it was fascinating to me. And I only had to think for a few seconds, and I raised my hand and said, I, I will do this. I, I volunteer to do this. And his reaction was, was very good. He, he, he got a very big smile on his face. You could tell that, you know, he, had, he was very happy to hear that news. And, he, you know, he reached over and shook my hand again. Michael this commitment you're making is going to be so important to your nation. It's going to be so important to, to the world and humanity. The, uh, the, there are things that are unknown. We're trying to learn more about them. And thank you for agreeing to come be a part of that. 
Now, while, while I had been having this conversation with this young captain, I didn't notice that two other Marines had come into the room through the door this captain had come in. That was over my shoulder to the right. And as I had agreed to do this, he, uh, you know, he, he pointed to the two Marines that were behind me and he said, great, great, great. When we get done talking here, you're going to leave with these gentlemen. And, you know, again, thank you, thank you for doing this, Michael. Uh, before, before he allowed me to leave, he wanted to, he extended an, another opportunity for me. He said, before you go, I want to know if there's anything that I can do for you. Is there anything that I can do? Well, I had remembered that the previous day I had not gotten the opportunity to speak with my family. And at 18, I, re I really wanted to hear my, my parents' voices if that was going to be a possibility. And I let him know that, you know, I didn't have a successful phone call. And I asked him if he would let me make a phone call home. I also, I was in the middle of explaining to him that I absolutely will not speak of anything that you and I have spoken about. And he, you know, he kind of stopped me before I could finish that statement, and he said, Michael, I, I can't do that. I can't let you make a phone call. But I will send a telegram home to your family to let them know that you've arrived safely here, here in San Diego. I knew that uh, that was all I was going to get out of him on that, that matter, and, and I, I was grateful for that. So I thanked him uh, for doing that for me. I stood up. We shook hands again and I left with the two Marines that were waiting for me. Great. Can, that telegram that he sent, can you explain how much later on in, in 2016, how when you saw that for the first time, that telegram he sent, how that was a trigger for you um, remembering much more about this 20 and back program. Yes, yes I can. Uh, and if you have the, the copy with you... Yes, you I do. In fact, us, uh, yeah. here it is in the original envelope. I've, uh, I've, I wrote a little information on the front of it because it was found in May of 2016. Now, it's really important to point out, along this journey in life, I have remembered that recruitment. I remembered all the different things that happened during that recruitment, and there's more to add to this as we as we go further into this story. But I never ever thought in all of these years that such a telegram would have even existed. I I wiped that from my memory. I never considered that 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 was possible. Well, last year my father found this telegram, and I was with him when he found it. He was digging through boxes of of old papers and pictures and pulled this out and handed it to me and when I opened it up and looked at it 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 was a trigger that took me right back to the process of being asked to be in this program my recruitment into the program and it opened up additional memories for me uh, in a way that oh it's amazing it, it was amazing to me how how much it opened to me but this this is is the document itself and uh, I, in all these years, I would have never thought that, again, that was 1978, and it, this is 2016, 38 years later that, that this was found. That triggered the opening of a lot more memories related to being asked to serve in a, in a covert or secret space program. And on that Marsgram, uh, the way in which those 
uh, telegrams are sent is typically it's required that the sender identifies himself or yes. herself yes. Um, before it's transmitted uh, by some radio ham operator to its final destination. But in, in your Marsgram, uh, the sender is not identified. That's right. So, you know, what, what does that mean? Well, to me, what it means, number one, the telegram should have never been sent. The lower portion of it right here, that is a section where the sender of the telegram is required to put all of the pertinent information for the, for the telegram to even be sent. It states clearly here that without that information, the message won't be sent. And of course, all of those fields and lines on this form are blank. To me, that lays out clearly that according to the rules by which the message would have been sent, that the message could not have been sent, but it was nonetheless. Mm -hmm. and, and this, of course, is a, a legitimate Navy telegram service that, ex that existed at the time. Yes, it was. Uh, I'll explain. It, it's called a Mars Grant, you know, uh, which is it's an odd name. But it, that's it. Mars is an acronym. It's an acronym for Military Affiliate Radio System. It is now known today. Uh, it's important to point out, the Navy and the Marine Corps terminated their version of the Mars program some years ago. I, I can't remember the exact year. The Army and the Air Force still have that in place. Uh, again, Mars stands for Military Affiliate Radio System. It is known today as the Military Auxiliary Radio System. What it is, it's the bringing together of amateur ham radio operators all over the country. Uh, I think the idea behind it was they designed it to be a resource that could be used in the event of a natural disaster or an emergency where possibly other communication technologies weren't operational and they could rely on civilian ham radio operators to fill the gap and, and to continue the, the flow of information. So uh, this message, although it was sent by that Marine captain, it was routed through a private ham radio operator in a town in Missouri, close, close to where you know, I'm from, close to the town that I grew up in. And the important point here is that um, if this was um, originating or the sender was part of a, a kind of normal or transparent Marine program, the captain or the sender would have identified himself, but because he was part of a covert yes. program, yes. it was deliberately left blank. That, and because that it was is, a covert, that is my belief that his information wasn't put on there because they didn't. He didn't want it on there. The, the this message wasn't generated in that typical sense. I believe that this message was intended to help trigger, kind of like a a breadcrumb or something like that, to leave a trail of things that may help later to trigger memory and and to to find it that many years later mm -hmm. it, it really really opened up a lot of memories for me related to this recruitment right uh, you know we don't know the precise percentage of mars grams that were sent without the sender identified no. but we can assume because it was in a, a legitimate military program that um, it would be very small that you know this wouldn't be just a typical oversight that the fact that it was sent is documentary evidence that there was some kind of covert uh, authorization 
behind it in terms of having that go forward. That, that is my belief. I, yeah. I agree with you totally, Michael. Another thing that's important to point out here, when I discovered this telegram, now I have, I have many friends that are prior service Marine Corps, and I asked them as many as I could run into when I would see them, did, did your family receive a MARS grant? And, and most Marines and service members, they know what MARS is. You know, it is truly a resource that you can use to send messages home and things like that. But I, I asked my friends, pardon me, if when they were in boot camp, if their families received any Marsgrams or telegrams from, from the Department of the Navy or the Marine Corps, and they were like, well, no, that, you know, that, I, I don't know anybody that received something like that from boot camp. So it seems like an anomaly that I received that, you know, a, a strange set of circumstances, kind of unique, that that I seem to be the only person I know that ever received that while in Marine Boot Camp. Okay. Well, one of the other things that the captain said to you, which I think is very significant here, is that uh, he said that they'd been watching you for a long time. Um, and two things come to mind here. One is that, and we'll be discussing it later, um, and, and that is your background and, and the testing that you had gone through three times during your through your childhood and teenage years where um, it seemed that someone was paying attention to the results yeah. of that testing. But we'll be talking about that later. Okay. Uh, but that what you just mentioned earlier about the UFO incident, um, is that in some way related to this statement by the captain? Well, I believe it is. And, and, and I, it's very interesting. When when we started talking and he extended this opportunity to me, he made the comment, there are things that the public isn't aware of. There are programs that, that have been kept secret. And he made the comment, you might even be aware of, of something that would say that, you know, there are things that people aren't aware of. I immediately made the connection in a strange way with the UFO encounter, which was in March of 1978, the fact that I had joined the Marine Corps, uh, and the fact that I was being recruited into a, a secret space program. And uh, it's important to point out, no one ever used that term during my recruitment, secret space program. It, it, the verbiage wasn't like that. But I tied those two together. And in my mind, it was clear to me that that black triangle I saw was in some way connected with the recruitment that I was going through at that moment. It was clear to me there was a connection. Well, uh, thanks, uh, Michael, for that. And what we'll do is take a break and we'll come back uh, for the next section and we'll be discussing some of the key experiences that you had during the 20 and back. Okay.